Man, those kids just make me want to like hold up my Bible. Like, yeah, let's do this. They get it. So good. So, so good. There's always things to learn from these amazing kids in our church. Uh, two quick things as we get started. The first is we had our volunteer appreciation night on Friday night. Um, many of you were able to be there. Some of you weren't. And so I just want to spill the thank yous through all the way to Sunday and say, if you serve in some capacity at Central, you have no idea how thankful we are. You create the culture here. You disciple people here. You um, Roll out the welcome mat of hospitality here. You love well, and for that we say thank you. We can't say it enough. We are so grateful for the ways in which you serve your church and ultimately are serving Jesus. It's not missed on us, and we say thank you. The second thing I'd like to say is happy Father's Day. Yes, Father's Day is like Mother's Day, except not a big deal. That's what Father's Day is. Here's the, I'm not sermonizing about fathers this morning, so here's the one thing I'll say to fathers. Um, the greatest gift that you can give your family is to love Jesus most. You will be, the, the way you will have the most profound impact on those in your life is by saying, I'm going to love Jesus more than anything. And you will have no idea how powerful that will be, what a testimony that will be, how that, in fact, will be the most loving thing you could possibly do. I just want to encourage you in that. I'm praying to that end for you this morning. On another note, what comes out of your mouth when you stub your toe? Don't say it. We don't want to start on the wrong foot. Oh, I didn't even mean that. <laughs> I didn't even mean that. That was a bad pastor joke, but it was an accidental bad pastor joke. <clears throat> what do you blurt out when you're caught off guard or when you're surprised? What do you whisper under your breath when you're frustrated with someone? What about when you're overwhelmed? Or what couple of words do you say at the end of a sentence to put an exclamation mark on it? What I'm getting at is that some of the phrases we may utter have something to do with God. And we are looking at the third commandment this morning, and when we think about the phrases we might blurt out about God, it's kind of what we think of when we think of the third commandment. And it is about our language but it is about so much more. Let me read to you the third command. It comes out of Exodus chapter 20. We are doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and uh, we are at commandment number three. Here's what it says. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let me throw a bunch of numbers at you. This is where we're going. I'm going to give you two definitions of the third commandment, then I'm going to give you three ways God's name was commonly profaned in the Old Testament, followed by five ways, why not, God's name is commonly profaned today, and then finally, one name that saves. 
That's our outline this morning. So let's start with two definitions of the third commandment. To, to interpret the Scriptures rightly, we utilize what we call hermeneutics. It, it's methods of interpreting the Bible faithfully. And so there's many ways that we apply that. One little thing that we apply to passages of Scripture is something called the two-sided rule, or it's also known as the law of opposites or the law of contraries. And here's how it works. It, it, it means that every command given in Scripture is both positive and negative. Therefore, where a, where a sin is forbidden, the corresponding duty is required, even if it's only saying one command. So a lot of the commandments, for example, have kind of a negative connotation to it. Have no other gods. Do not worship idols. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, right? But at the same time, it's also that one command is also saying the contrary. So here, I'll give you an example. The command not to murder simultaneously requires the preservation of life. The command not to steal also demands that we give generously to people in need. The true intent of each commandment is to tell us what to do as well as what not to do. That's why I'm going to give you two definitions on the third commandment here. I'm going to give you the negative as it's kind of stated in it and also flip it and give you the positive definition. So negative, what's opposed? Here it is. We are not to profane God's name by treating it contemptuously, irreverently, or in a way that brings dishonor on His name. Let me state it positively. We should zealously and reverently honor God's name in our thoughts, speech, and action. This third command is at the same time stating both of those things. This positive, what, what's affirmed here is what Jesus was referring to in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To hallow is to honor as holy. It's to revere. Do not take God's name in vain. It's to not do something, but also to do something, to honor as holy the name of God. Names in the Bible have significance. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about Peter and the fact that Jesus came along and saw Simon, at, who, whose name meant little, little pebble, and he changed his name to rock, right? There's significance to what, what names uh, are in the Bible. This is what happens in Exodus chapter 3. God revealed His name to Moses it says that God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. That's his name. Literally, I am who I am. And it speaks of God's self-existence, self-sufficiency, and total sovereignty. So when the Bible refers to God's name, like honor God's name, it's referring to much more than a name. It's referring to his identity because that's what names mean in the Bible. So it's kind of different for us, like the significance of biblical names and then kind of names we have today. Like my, my two sons, my older son's name is Boston. It means town by the woods. <clears throat> my younger son's name is Walker. That means one who walks. Uh, it's deep, Emily and I, a couple of real deep people here. Look, for us, 
Uh, for us, typically today, for us, a name is something we have. In the Bible, a name is something you are. Do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. Do not dishonor God is what's being said here. Therefore, we take God's name in vain when we, when we empty it of its significance. We empty God of His greatness and His glory. It's to be flippant with His name. It's to be flippant with Him. Now, here are three ways God's name was commonly profaned in the Old Testament. I'm using work done by Joachim Duma, who was a Dutch Old Testament scholar. He, he, he summarized kind of the three most common uses of God's name in a profane way in the Old Testament. The first is through sorcery. Sorcery has to do with the occult. It's, it's really, to boil it down, seeking supernatural power by using divine names in magical incantations. This is what Pharaoh's Egyptians did, right? Moses comes and, and God is working the miraculous through Moses in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has these magicians, and they try to match him at every turn, but like really early on, they just can't. I mean, even in the, I think it's the third plague of gnats, it says in Exodus 8, 18, the magicians, that's Pharaoh's magicians, tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Very quickly, they could not do what God could do. And we need to remember that the Israelites, these, these people brought out of exile, are people who have spent 400 years in slavery in a place where the, their sorcery is happening, and they're going into a land where sorcery has happened. They're, they're surrounded by these things. And so, therefore, God wants to set apart His people and says, have no part in that. That's what He's saying in Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, when Moses writes, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. That was happening. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Don't be like them. In fact, we, we discover that, that, that God is not only giving His people a possession of a land, He's also using that transition as a time of judgment on those who misused the name of God. God refuses to be manipulated through the use of His name and the names of false gods for satanic purposes. To do so would clearly be to take God's name in vain. That is the first way that God's name was commonly profaned in the Old Testament. The second is through false prophecy. Prophets would say, God says, and then make a statement, or to put it in an old school way, thus saith the Lord, and then they would make their statement. God is saying this to the people, but a false prophet was someone who would say, God said, when he didn't. To tell others that God has said something that He hasn't is to lie and abuse the holy name of God. 
To put the name of God behind something that God is not behind is to lie and is to abuse the very name of God. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 14. The Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. That is, in a nutshell, false prophecy. The third was through taking false oaths. They would do this to persuade others that they were telling the truth, whether in court or in business or settings kind of like that. They would say things like, as the Lord lives, I'm telling you the truth, or as the Lord lives, I will pay you back if you give me this loan. It was, but when they would say it with no intention of adhering to it is where the false oath would come in. It's like, it was our, it's like our way of putting our hand on the Bible in a courtroom, a way of saying, I'm telling the truth calling God as their witness, puts a weight behind it. But this was, of course, problematic when they would take an oath in God's name and then proceed to lie. To take a false oath in God's name was to use His name to confirm what was false rather than what was true. And God will not come that way. In each of these cases, people tried to use God's name to their own advantage for the sake of their own purposes rather than the purposes of God. So, while those certainly apply to us today, I want to kind of make it even more clear for us by showing you five ways that God's name is commonly profaned today. Here's the first, really generic. We could put a lot of things under this umbrella. It's just simply using God. Using God. This is what happens when people attach God's name to something and say that this is done in God's name when it's not like apartheid in South Africa or Nazism in Germany or the Crusades in history. Now, a lot of times there's these circumstances where church and state are uh, intricately woven, and so therefore for political gains, the name of God would sometimes be behind it. There are very few wars that have been fought where both sides weren't sure that God was on their side. This even happens when tragic events in the world take place. And then some sort of Christian leader steps up and gives a very specific reason for why this happened. This is one of the, this is one of the, I I hate to see this happen, like when 9-11 happened. And there were leaders in the church who got up and said, you know why this tragedy happened? Because it's God's judgment on America for abortion. Specifically, for sure, God did. God made 9-11 happen for that specific reason. He told you that? That's using God. We don't know why all kinds of events take place, but there are people who will say it's for this specific reason. It's like, how are you sure? In a, in a more general way, people use God's name to advance their own agenda. Just recently, a televangelist claimed that God told him to buy a $54 million luxury private jet. This is what he said. God said, I want you to believe me for a Falcon 7X, the evangelist said. 
And he goes on to say, the first thing I thought of was, how am I going to pay for it? And a great statement that he told me in 1978 flooded into my mind, and he said, Jesse, I didn't ask you to pay for it. I asked you to believe for it. So this is a word that he says he got from God, which is that he should believe God for a $54 million jet, but then he proceeded to tell all of his followers, would you donate to my $54 million private jet fund? My other one's 12 years old and needs to refuel if I want to go across the world. This one wouldn't. Here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. He's not the only pastor who's asked his people for a private jet this year. Like I heard almost the exact same story just a few months ago. Another guy. Like this is a thing. So central. <laughs> Going to need you to dig down deep. That is so off. That's probably the worst joke I've ever. It was just, it was right there. I had to. I had a friend, I still have a friend. Um, we became, we, we became friends uh, our first year of Bible college together, and she had just given her life to Christ in grade 12, and then like towards the end of grade 12. And so just, she signed up for Bible college right after that. And just so a few months into her Christian faith, she arrived at Bible school. It was a brand new Christian, just so hungry to learn. And a few months in, this guy who lived in my, my dorm area um, took a real interest in her. And he said to her, God told me we were supposed to get married. And she starts really worrying because she doesn't like him, but she's new in her faith and is like, but if God said that we were supposed to, I want to follow God. She's like stressing out. What an awful thing to do. They didn't get married. She actually ended up marrying one of my really good friends, and I think God was in that. So that's using God. All of the things I've just said are using God. It's one thing to say, listen to the difference. It's one thing to say, I'm sensing the Lord leading me to this. Or God said this in His Word, and it was affirmed by this brother or this sister in Christ. Right? Sense the Lord is wanting us to go this way or that way. Or God, God is really clear about what He demands of followers of Jesus to do in the Scriptures. But in some of this subjective stuff, we dare not say, God said. We are very close. We are in the midst of, we are on the brink of using God because we are often very undiscerning about the things that we really want and what God really wants and attaching God's name to what we really want. It's a huge temptation, happens all the time, and when we do it, we profane the name of God. Second, revisionist theology. Let's maybe define that this way, redefining ancient orthodoxy dishonestly. Ultimately, making him to be someone that he's not. I hear this a lot. I hear this one. I hear this a lot. So let's just go there. Um, Matt, I don't. I'm not into all the theology stuff. It's kind of heady. 
I am just about having a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you know people who feel that way. Look, I'm not into all the theology stuff. You know, you guys are all just into having a relationship with Jesus. Can I tell you what that's like? That's like saying, I'm, I'm not into getting to know my spouse. I just want to love her. I just want to love him. Like, what? To love someone is to know them, and to know them is to like, want to know them more and more and more. Like, right, this is what we do in our, in our marriages is we, we talk. Am I right, gentlemen? Like, we, we talk and we listen and we listen and we listen and then we talk some more. Right? This, this is a relationship, but it's beautiful. We hear the hardships. We hear the joys. We hear the interests. And as we learn more about the person that we are married to, we come to love them more, know them more. Those things are intrinsically tied into say, I'm not about all the theology stuff. I'm just about having a relationship. You're having a shallow relationship with a God you don't care to know. And what also happens in that is when we don't care to know about theology, we invent our own. Oh, I think God's like this. I think God's like this. This is called revisionist theology. It's taking the beautiful truths that we call theology, which is the study of God, learning about Him, not just for head knowledge, but so that it sinks into this deepening relationship. As we learn more about God, we go, wow. And it deepens our worship of Him. Revisionist theology alters orthodoxy, and the great danger is bringing in wrong ideas about God, wrong teaching about His character, and ultimately that is to profane God. One writer wrote satirically, certain revisionists believe in God, but the word God means something very different in the revisionist's mouth. All theological ideas have been so revised by the revisionists. Resurrection of Jesus Certainly, I believe in the resurrection, but let me tell you what I mean by that. The resurrection is a fictive story physicalizing the continued felt presence of Jesus among the early followers of Christ. Hell? Certainly, I believe in hell, but let me tell you what I mean by that. Hell is in no sense tormenting, but is the instant annihilation of the souls of very bad people. Virgin birth? Certainly, I believe in the virgin birth. But let me tell you what I mean by that. We're not speaking here of literal, hymenal virginity, but... And on and on it goes. Al Mohler summarized revisionist theology this way. To malign God's name is to misrepresent Him, and thus to bear false witness. We have no right to define God, to redefine God. But this is exactly what we do when we take His name in vain. See, our goal is not to revise theology in such a way that God is cast into our image and liking. Our goal is to grow in our knowledge and love of the one true God as revealed in Scripture and handed down through the centuries. Third, careless worship. I'm not wanting to rag on worship music here at all because, listen, there has been really bad church music in every generation, (laughs) and there has been really good music, really good church music in every generation, right? Sometimes we think, oh, in the 16th century, 
everything they wrote was just so rich theologically and exalted Christ. No, they didn't. A handful of gems have been held on to because they are incredible. We cast aside thousands that were fluff. We still write fluff. We still write, and, and gems continue to emerge. That is the Christian music scene. <laughs> I don't know why we play some of the worst ones on the radio a lot of the time. Anyways, okay. This is what I want to talk about in terms of careless worship. The first part is me-centered worship, which obviously isn't worship at all, but is a thing. Me-centered worship is worship that is more fixated on self rather than God. I'm going to go to a worship service tonight. I just love, oh, man, it just feels so good. concerned with the experience for self in whatever the worshiping of God is like. Whatever's happening there, it's, it's more of an emphasis on, I love that, or that feels good, or that serves me well. I enjoy it. Worship of God has no me-centeredness to it, but is the pouring out of praise and adoration and worship for who He is and what He's done and saying, I want to honor you, so I'm going to lift my hands in praise to you and surrender to you, right? As a posture in the way we live. See, the fixation of our worship is not getting, on getting a feeling for ourselves, but honoring God's great and glorious name. Augustine said there are only two loves, love of God and love of self, and everything tends towards one of these poles of love and affection. So if we are self-lovers, ultimately, we will care about me-centered worship, not Christ-exalting worship. Another way in which we are careless worshipers is simply through irreverence. We're flippant, like God is a common commodity, right? We worship God as if He's some, somebody that we can grasp entirely and is kind of a bud. There's t-shirts that say things like, this blood's for you, in reference to the atonement on the cross, instead of this bud's for you, Budweiser. Or, God is rad, He's my dad, and we wear this on shirts. It's like, what? Irreverence, right? There's, there's a tricky balance here. I was talking about this with one, uh, someone at our, our volunteer appreciation, actually, on Friday night. We were chatting about this, and I think there's a line to draw. Uh, websites like the Babylon Bee that, that kind of poke fun at church culture and all that kind of stuff, I've got a lot of time for that. I mean, our, our staff, we spend a lot of time mocking each other, Right? We have fun with that. We poke at each other. We enjoy it because we don't think we should take ourselves that seriously at all. And, and in the Christian subculture, let's admit it, there is some weird stuff, some quirky stuff, right? And so we can joke about that stuff and poke at that stuff, but not God. Let's not take ourselves too seriously, but we ought to always take God seriously. That doesn't mean we always need to be serious about God. There's joy, there's vibrancy, there's humor, there's laughter. But we ought to always honor God, not mock Him. Mock ourselves, sure, that's a blast if it doesn't hurt people. But honor God. We can be careless in that regard. Isaiah 29 The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
Their worship of me is based on merely human rules. They have been taught. In our irreverence, in our me-centered worship, what so often happens is no true praise actually comes to the ear of God. We're just caught up in a thing, whether it's empty words we sing that our hearts are disengaged with or whether we're being trite or flippant in what we're doing. We can be so careless in our worship. As Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, my words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. When our worship is careless, insincere, and me-focused, when it's irreverent, we dishonor God's glorious name. In Christian worship, we want to worship and adore God, not in some detached, disengaged way, but from a posture of delight and reverence and awe. And what happens is what spills out of that kind of a posture are spoken words and sung words that revere and honor His great name. Fourth, blasphemous language. This, of course, is what comes to mind when the, first, the third commandment is stated, right? Do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. We think don't curse, don't swear. But I, I, I put this forth for a reason. It's just kind of, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a part of this, but it's just in the mix. But really when it comes to blasphemous language, what the real issue is, the heart condition that's revealed through the language. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 15. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. What Jesus is saying, by and large, for the most part, um, our issues are not coming from outside and infiltrating in. They're inside of us, and they're flowing out in our speech. And so, therefore, our blasphemous language is simply a product of crooked hearts. Blasphemous, not words, hearts. The way God's name gets used can be pretty awful. But I think there's a dual thing, a dual indicator in kind of the, the harsh language we hear about God, dual indicator. First, the godlessness that is so rampant in our society is certainly an indicator of that language. But at the same time, the other indicator is it shows that we can never get away from God. I was watching a program where um, uh, an atheist was being interviewed, and his swear words of choice were names for God. <laughs> I'm just like, that's so odd. You're an atheist. And when you choose to use expressive language, you're talking about God. I actually really think that's an evidence for the existence of God. People can't swear without talking about God. It's so in us. We were created for God. And ultimately, the rage and the rebellion from God works itself out even in our speech and the crass ways we talk about God as it leaves our lips. Rather than honoring God, we show a rebellion, our running from Him. But we can, at the end of the day, never escape God. 
God is not looking for some minor behavior modification in you. I need to say that here because what we often think in church, if you've been around church for a while, is thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, and we think, ooh, I better clean up my language. And I'm trying to say, no, this is a heart condition thing. We want Jesus to clean up our lives. We want Jesus to do that in us. See, God is not looking for some minor behavior modification in you that you not say God's name irreverently anymore. No, what he's looking for is that your life would be so radically transformed by the gospel that you can't help but speak God's name with great awe and reverence and love. So fixated on the gospel, so amazed by it, that out of the wellspring of such gratitude will spill our posture towards God's towards God. If, if we love Jesus, have been profoundly changed by Jesus, the third commandment will not be a hard one to follow in the sense of our speech. A heart that reveres God and is in awe of God cannot speak of God in a way that empties him of his significance. Here's the last way I'd like to focus on this morning. Hypocritical lives. It says, do not take his name in vain. Put it this way, do not bear his name in a vain way. Take, we often think kind of language, like, oh, don't state it, but bear it has to do with everything about us. And as Christians, we bear the name of Christ and do not bear his name in vain, the command is telling us. This is important. Because one of the reasons why many people stay away from the church and stay away from Jesus is because they think the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. They're the most judgmental people there are. They're arrogant and they're hypocritical. They tell people not to do things that they go on to do. Hypocrites say one thing but behave another, and that way is contrary to Jesus. So let's address this in, in, in four ways. Here's the first. This, is, this has to be where we start when we talk about hypocrisy. We need to acknowledge it, and we need to apologize. A number of years ago, I read a book called Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller, autobiographical book. Uh, and he, at one point, wrote about he was a part of this liberal uh, college in Oregon, uh, like very liberal, very godless and on a weekend where there was a ton of partying going on, they, sent up, they set up a confessional booth in the middle of the camp, university campus. And so these people who are on their way to being drunk or drunk are walking through the campus on the weekend, and they see this confessional booth, and they go, ah, that's, that's funny, and they step in, and they start confessing their sins in a kind of mocking, jovial way. But that wasn't the point why this, this small group of Christians, including Donald Miller, put up this confessional booth. The point was so that when the person came in, Miller could confess to them the sins of the church and apologize for the pain that it had caused. It was through this humble repentance that Christianity gained credibility and a hearing on that campus because it started with acknowledging it and saying, yeah, We've done horrible things in the name of God, and we need to apologize for that. We've hurt you. We've judged you, and we know that you know that. And that is what started to gain traction for the gospel. 
in this liberal school. John Johnstone works part-time with us. He started in May as our Indigenous Ministries Director. You will probably meet him maybe once or twice, I don't know, because his job is actually to drive into Lake Iraq and to uh, meet the nearly 50% Indigenous population there, to go onto their turf, to get to know them, to build bridges, and he's been uh, doing that now since the beginning of May. He started even earlier than that. He's just an amazing man of prayer and sensitive to the Holy Spirit and going there trying to build bridges, recognizing that there have been a lot of hurts call, hurts um, by the church to the indigenous uh, people in our nation. And so he's trying to bring some healing and restoration, hopefully some opportunities for, for deep relationship and uh, having Christ in common. And so he's gone, and he's introduced himself to people, and he asks a question every time. He says, you know that, that church building over there? And he points to the, uh, it used to be North Fraser Church, and we inherited that building, and we're about to launch a, like, Iraq campus there. It's the only church in a stretch of, like, 40 minutes on the Lougheed Highway there. He says, you know that church there, like the one church in town? Do you know that church? You go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that church. Or, yeah, I've been there before. Or, oh, I sent my kids to something there. So he finds out a little bit about that, and then he follows it up by saying, is there anything that it needs to repent of? What a great question. Because Christianity is oftentimes blurred, fogged, isn't even clearly visible for what it truly is because of all the hypocrites in the way. And, and the best way to start is by saying, is there anything we need to apologize for? And to say, I am so sorry. The leaders in this church are committed to, we may not have physically been a part of hurting in those specific individuals with that specific church or whatever, but we are so happy to go and say, we are sorry. We are so sorry. So the bridge to the gospel can be built. So healing can happen. So Jesus can do his amazing work of reconciliation through us. In Mark chapter 20, or sorry, Mark chapter 1, it tells how Jesus began his ministry. Do you know how it began? It began with Jesus preaching, repent. But here's the thing. He was talking to really religious people. Repent. Hypocrites. Own it. See, when it comes to hypocrisy, this is where we need to start as followers of Jesus. Here's the second part. Not everyone who goes to church is a Christian. We need to understand this when we talk about hypocrisy. See, Jesus taught that there are false teachers, and he taught that there are false disciples. Jesus warns that in the end, there will be a group of religious people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons, and I performed mighty works in your name. And Jesus' response will be, it says in Matthew 7, I never knew you. I don't know you. You did a bunch of stuff, but you never loved me. You never walked with me. You never cared about me. That's a sobering thing. These are people who identify as Christians, attend church, don't swear, give an offering, stay away from bad movies. However, they don't actually know, love, or walk with God at all. 
My point is that one of the reasons that the church seems so hypocritical today is not because the Christian teachings are bad and therefore invalidated, but because many people who claim to know Jesus don't actually know Him, don't actually follow Him, and their lives don't produce the kind of fruit of the Spirit that grows in every believer of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In the name of Christ, there are people who propagate things that have nothing to do with Christ, and we need to acknowledge that. Third, the gospel isn't about what we do for God, but what He has done for us. This doesn't go against what I just said, but it goes it's, it parallel tracks. The gospel isn't about what we do for God, but what He has done for us. There's a perception that the church is filled with people who think they're good, but that's wrong. The church is made up of people who acknowledge that they aren't good. That's why they're there, Right? The true church of Jesus Christ is a whole bunch of people that are like, I can't. Jesus can. Jesus lived a perfect life precisely because we can't. The church isn't a country club. It's a rescue mission. The Christian faith is not built on the moral lives of the people who believe, but on the founder of the faith and his teachings on Jesus Here's the last thing I would say about that. Everyone's on a different stage in their walk with Jesus. Some people are brand new to the Christian faith, and people look in and say, hey, you say you're a Christian. They're like at the beginning of their walk with Jesus. They're like, you're a Christian, and you're not doing the right thing. You're a hypocrite. It's like, no, you should have seen their lives yesterday. Like, you should have, yeah, their lives are right here, but you should have seen them here. And they're going to go to here, right? Like, that's the Christian life, the sanctification that, that Jesus does in our lives. His Spirit molds us and shapes us more into His image over time, and it's really slow. And every one of us are in a different place in our journey with Jesus. And so we look in and say, yeah, I'm here, but you should have seen me here. Yeah, I'm growing, and yeah, I'm still a hypocrite. But it's, the faith isn't built upon me. It's built upon Christ. And I'm just a needy person who knows He needs Him and that He's going to change me. Disciples of Jesus will grow, but they won't always be perfect, not until glory. The last thing I would say about hypocrisy is I would ask the pressing question, what kind of witness do you have? How does God show what He's like to the rest of the world? He does it through His Word. He does it through creation. He does it through our conscience. He also does it through His people. He does it through the way His people carry His name. And we bear his name, Christians. We bear his name. Our witness isn't simply, hey, I think I'm going to go witness to my neighbor, meaning I'm going to have a five-minute conversation about Jesus with him. We witness all the time. And at every moment, we're either a good witness or we're a bad witness. But Christians who bear the name of Christ are constantly witnessing something. Always, in your speech, in how you treat others, in what you spend your money on, all of these things are telling the watching world what God is like. You bear His name. So this isn't a command that's simply about swear words. It's about swearing with our lives, claiming to be Christians, and then contradicting the message of Christ through our actions. We bear His name. How do you bear it? How do you witness to Christ? At this point, you can feel quite discouraged. I want you to feel convicted. I want you to feel convicted. God wants you to feel convicted on this. That's why the third command exists. Do not take his name in vain. But that's not the end of the story. 
I've said it every week so far in the Ten Commandments. They started not with the law, but with the gospel. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery and bondage to sin. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who's pursued you. I'm the one who's released you into freedom, right? And that's the beauty of it all. There's one name that saves. That's the good news I want to leave you with this morning. Jesus died for all our sins, including all of our violations of the third commandment. Thank you, Jesus. There's this quirky story in Acts chapter 19 where Paul is in Ephesus, early goings of Ephesus ministry, and he's preaching in the name of Jesus. He's baptizing in the name of Jesus, and he's healing in the name of Jesus. And there's these Jewish exorcists who are all brothers. They're the seven sons of Sceva. And they see, hey, look at the power in that name that Paul's using, that name of Jesus. We should try that. And they go and try and exorcise a demon out of a guy. And they're like, in the name of the Jesus that Paul follows. <laughs> Something like that. And the evil spirit answers them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man who was demon-possessed overpowered them all and beat them. And it tells us in the text that they all ran away naked and wounded. Do you see the warning in the text? Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You take his name in vain, you're going to get a beating. You're going to get a punishment like the seven sons of Sceva. You want to use his name wrongly? You're going to be tossed out of there naked and wounded. And though we have all belittled the name of Jesus and even used his name in vain, here's the beauty of the gospel. He took the beating for us. He bore the punishment that we rightly deserve. The penalty before our sins will be paid in one of two ways, by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross or by us on the day of judgment when the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead. Take the gospel. We need to confess our misuse of God's name. We need to confess our misuse of God's name because he has warned us that he will not hold us guiltless wherever we have used God for our selfish gain or manipulated theology or been careless in our worship or spoken of God in an empty, cheap way. And whenever we have been hypocritical and a bad witness for Christ, I'm sorry, I'm making babies cry. But here's the thing, the Acts 19 story ends where it says, because they got beaten by an evil spirit, they had not honored the name of Jesus. They had profaned it. And everybody's like, whoa! It says, fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What the end of the story is saying, when the name of Jesus is actually honored... His kingdom grows. So here's the thing, my Christian community. Jesus bore the cross for us, and we bear the name of Christ as Christians. We ought to follow in what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. From a heart that says, you saved me. 
your grace for my great sin? And dwell on that and live in that and believe that. And then our lives will pour out as these grateful witnesses of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Peter was right when he said in Acts 4, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are great sinners. But he is an even greater Savior. And there is one name that saves. May we proclaim it to the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask this, this morning that we could turn this sanctuary into a bit of a, a massive confessional booth. That we have, we have so dishonored your name in many ways, and we need to repent. Your, the beauty of your commands is they show us our specific sins, and we can turn and repent of them. And So, Lord, I pray that we would do that, not in some generic way, forgive me of my sin, but, Lord, that we would be convicted of the ways in which we have broken this third commandment and bring it to the foot of the cross and plead for your grace, recognizing there's mercy and then living in great gratitude that you lift the burden off our backs because Jesus bore it on his. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for fulfilling the great name of God. And we pray, Jesus, that as we go from here, we would bear the name of Christ to the world around us in a way that greatly honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.